podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Let's stand together to hear the word of the Lord. We're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The passage goes on to talk about uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Uh, Timothy was Paul's companion, and he was sending him to the church in Philippi for some teaching and exhortation. Uh, And Epaphroditus actually was a Philippian who took a love offering to Paul Uh, when he was in prison. Uh, In a Roman prison, you had to provide for your own food uh, and clothing. Uh, The Romans didn't do any of that. And so the Philippians heard about that, and they wanted to take care of him. Epaphroditus goes, he gets deathly ill. The Philippians hear about that, it it, it frightens them. Uh, But by the the Lord's grace, Epaphroditus became better. And so uh, Paul wants them to know that uh, in this letter. But uh, I felt, as I was preparing this week for this sermon, uh, to focus on the earlier part of the section uh, that we just read. Some of you have come up to me and asked, uh, when I open up the services, uh, you ask me if I am praying in tongues. And that's close. Uh, It's it's actually an ancient uh, Greek prayer. Uh, It goes back to the 6th century where a priest would invoke God's presence, the triune presence of God, uh, to be a part of the worship service. And I love connecting our community uh, to our ancient roots. Uh, Another thing uh, that we do is I'll take just a moment to put the Sunday service in the rhythm of the Christian calendar, which is a way for you and I to draw closer to our Lord Uh, Jesus Christ. If if you've been a part of our church, you know that we are always elevating Jesus, and the Christian calendar is all about Jesus. Uh, There are two great days in the year, Christmas and Easter. Uh, Christmas celebrates the coming of the Lord, and Easter celebrates his death, resurrection, uh, and his ascension. And uh, we have four weeks leading up to uh, Christmas, we call Advent, uh, which means the coming of Jesus or the presence of Jesus. 
And that season uh, culminates in a feast that's called Epiphany, which, especially in the East, is a celebration of God revealing himself as triune at Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River. And then there's a season of ordinary time, and then uh, we move into Easter season, which begins with Lent, uh, where many of us as a congregation uh, fasted, and we took time to get into a rhythm of entering into uh, contrition uh, in preparation for Good Friday. We celebrate Easter as a church uh, by baptizing one another, uh, which is what the ancient church would do. And Easter season culminates in uh, a Pentecost, which we celebrated two weeks ago, which celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the upper room, and it officially ends in Trinity Sunday, uh, which was last Sunday which again is a celebration of uh, the triune God. And so when I was asked to preach this morning, I thought this was just a perfect moment in our calendar to meditate on the mystery of our union with Christ. And Paul actually develops that uh, in the passage that we're looking at. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, mosaic. This is called the Medaba map, and it is on a floor of an ancient Byzantine church. In the early centuries of our faith, Christians would leave their towns all over the Mediterranean, and either by ship or along the Roman highways, they would take this pilgrimage to go to the promised land where they could walk literally in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And so after months of very difficult, uh, even dangerous travel, when they finally made it to the promised land, they would walk into this church, and on the floor was this mosaic, which was a map of everywhere Jesus walked during his ministry. This map shows the location where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. The Gospels say it happened just across the Jordan River, and archaeologists actually used this map in order to locate the precise location of where Jesus was baptized, and that's here. This is called El Magtas, and it's in Jordan, and in the first century, the Jordan River went right over this location. And when archaeologists went in there and began to dig, they discovered uh, what you could call a motel, which was where pilgrims would stay. They found these little chapels where believers would worship. And they also discovered that there were all these monks that lived in caves all around the location. And these monks spent their entire life doing nothing but meditating on the implications of what happened in Jesus' baptism in that location. Everything changed. And so when the pilgrims would come, they would begin their journey in the way of Jesus by being baptized in the Jordan River. 
and then they would walk into Jerusalem for the rest of the story. And so Paul picks this up in a beautiful way in his passage. Let's take a closer look at it. Paul, in verse 12, says, Therefore, uh, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The first thing we notice is he uses the word therefore, which attaches this passage to uh, last week's scripture, which tells the story of Jesus emptying himself in a way that when he walked down the street, nobody noticed him. He emptied himself. He was a king, and yet nobody saw him as a king. And he, in obedience to the will of the Father, became a servant, even to the point where he was willing to suffer a humiliating death on a cross. And so Paul wants to attach this passage to Jesus' own story, which culminates in him being glorified to the right hand of the Father so that someday all creation will acknowledge him as Lord. And that should bring about a spirit of fear and trembling. Paul calls you and I to a life of obedience, for our life to reflect the life of Christ. And, and when I hear invitations to obedience, like all of us, I immediately think of my sin, my disobedience, my continuing rebellion in pockets of my life towards God. Obedience is a difficult thing. And yet you'll notice that Paul doesn't ground his invitation to obedience in a condemning tone. He's not calling us to a life of obedience based upon our own ability and our own merits, but rather he's calling us to a life of obedience in our relationship with Jesus. Right? When Jesus came out of the water, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, who then led him through the rest of his ministry. And you and I, brothers and sisters, have been given that spirit, right? And so in Christ, there is the potential of obedience. And that's what Paul is calling us to. And, and he shows it by connecting his instruction here to Jesus's baptism. You can see it. In Mark chapter 111, which is on the screen there, when Jesus comes out of the water, the Father says, You are my beloved Son, Mu Agapetos. Paul, for the very first time in the letter, says, Therefore, my beloved Agapetoi Mu. He uses the exact same language. The Father says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Udekeo. Paul uses the exact same stem as a noun, which is translated for his good pleasure. And so Paul is encouraging the Philippians to live out of their union with Christ right, out of the fact that they have been drawn into the triune love of God and are saved and out of that place of acceptance and empowerment 
to then go be a light in a broken world. That's the invitation of this passage. There's a paradox in this in these verses. On the one hand, Paul says, work out your salvation. Right? You have to take some responsibility in this relationship. On the other hand, he says, it is God who is at work in you. And in fact, he emphasizes that reality by restating that. God is the one working in you. And so, which is it? In Paul's day, they would talk about both a primary agency behind an action or a behavior and a secondary agency. And what that meant was you can have someone who is the primary uh, empower to an activity, and then there is someone that is then able to implement that, right? Like a servant carrying out the instructions of a master. And we see this paradoxical, paradoxical reality in Paul's description here when he says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If you read the Bible, whenever someone is encountered by God, their first response is to either fall on the ground, to be silent, or to say, woe is me, right? Because we are being drawn into the transcendent holiness of God. People in the Bible, when they're encountered by the one true living God, they are overwhelmed with fear. How could we not be? But what's interesting, um, and, 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 and we've all had this experience, um, the hairs on the back of our neck going up, right? A sense of coming into something numinous or mysterious. And, and, and what makes this experience that Paul's talking about different from a lot of our experiences is, is we get afraid because there's just a lot of nasty stuff out there, right? We become afraid because there's, there's darkness and wickedness in the world. And so normally what happens is when we experience that fear, our body, right, is kind of warning us that there's something dark happening here. We tend to feel revulsion and we want to run away from it. This is the great mystery of the Bible. When God encounters us, our first experience will be fear, but then it turns into love. Instead of being revolted by God, we begin to become aware of his goodness, his beauty, and his truth, right? And so that fear, rather than a revulsion, becomes an invitation, right, to enter in, but to enter in in a spirit of humility. To come to passages like this, we have to take just a little bit of time and talk about the mystery of free will, right? The tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I just don't want to get into anything unnecessarily controversial. This is a sermon meant to encourage you. But there's a lot of confusion about free will. On the one hand, the Bible clearly assumes that there's free will that humans have free will. 
Uh, we see that in the fact that God's people are always rejecting his love. Over and over again, God gives these invitations, and apparently people can decide to receive that love uh, or to reject that love. We also see free will in the fact that God says that we will all someday be personally held accountable, be held accountable for our behavior. And if we were just automatons and had no control, that would be unjust. So there clearly is a kind of free will uh, in the Bible, but it's not the free will that some people think. Um, some people think free will is just sort of this freedom to do whatever we want, that we're making these decisions in isolation uh, from other things. When the Bible talks about free will, it's a very constrained will. We're constrained by natural law. I may, not dis I may not agree with the law of gravity, but <laughs> if I'm holding an ice cream cone and it slips out of my hands, it's going to fall to the ground. We are constrained by our ignorance. There may be an ice cream shop that you don't know about, and you keep going to the same old place every week, right? Kyle... Uh, introduced me to a, a new ice cream shop just down the street from me, and I'm like, where have you been all my life? <laughs> eh. Respados. You getting hungry? It is about lunchtime. Um, we're also constrained by scarcity. Even if we knew about all the ice cream shops in Phoenix, there are only so many ice cream shops. We're constrained by our community and our family histories. Do you know that the most popular flavor of ice cream in Arizona is horchata? In Idaho, it's huckleberry. But most importantly to what we're talking about this morning, most significantly, we are constrained by our own desires. You see, we are free to choose whatever we desire, but we don't get to choose those desires. I have a favorite ice cream shop and every time I walk in there, uh, I order green tea ice cream. And a while ago, I started to feel enslaved by that. It was frustrating. <laughs> there were 30 other flavors. <laughs> and so I ordered mango. And I was a little depressed after it. <laughs> it just wasn't green tea ice cream. I think Paul accepts a certain freedom, a certain amount of free will. But I don't think that was Paul's concern. If you read his letters carefully, he's much more concerned about 
what I would call freedom over the will. Freedom over our desires. The only way that you and I can be freed to not be a slave to what we should be a Lord over, (laughs) the only way that we will find freedom is to surrender to the Father's will, which is what we see in this passage. And Jesus models this when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, led by the Spirit there, facing his own death. Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. See, Jesus was exercising his free will there, right? He was making a decision, a decision that he had to make. Here's the great irony. Everybody's talking about free will, free will, freedom. When we finally surrender our will to the Father's, we discover who we truly are. We are largely a product of our will. St. Augustine defines the soul as a composite of memory, reason, and will. But our desires are what largely define us. And if our desires are crooked and twisted, what are we? And so it's only by aligning our will to the Father's, by following Jesus' example by the Holy Spirit, that we can begin to discover who we are. The point being, following Jesus is being led by the Spirit in the way of the Father's will according to our unique personhood. The Father's will is not for us all to turn into the same person. The Father's will is not for all of us to turn into a first century Jew. The Father's will is for us to flourish in our particularity and to find freedom in what we were created to be because we were created in his image. But we can't do this on our own. So many people feel guilt when they can't change. (laughs) Guess what, brothers and sisters? You can't change on your own. You don't get to pick your desires, right? That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? That's the working of God in our life. And if there's one thing I've learned in ministry is that that's up to God's timetable. You know, we're all broken, but we can hold that reality with one another. We can forgive one another. We can encourage one another along this journey. That it is not us at the end of the day who is bringing about our salvation, but it is God working in us. Amen. Continuing to work through us.
the Holy Spirit gives us a new desire and he creates a space that we can pray expressing our freedom. <laughs> a lot of people struggle with, I'm not lined up with the Father's will right now. I've got desires that are contrary to his will. Brothers and sisters, what God wants from us is to desire to desire his will. <laughs> Are you following me? <laughs> right? What he wants from us right now in our brokenness is to say, that's not the plan I had for my life. Uh, we're not on the same page, Lord. But my desire in my prayer is to will your will. Amen. That's what we can do. Paul goes on. And he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Where Jesus was baptized was a very sacred place, because hundreds of years before that, Joshua brought Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land, right in that same place. And a lot of people don't realize this, but the name Joshua and the name Jesus are exactly the same. It's the same name. It's the exact same spelling in Greek, Yesu. And so, whereas the first Jesus, if you will, when Joshua brought Israel across the Jordan into the promised land, through Jesus' baptism, our Lord is now bringing us into the promised land. Right? But the, the people that came across the Jordan had learned a very difficult lesson. Because the Exodus generation before them, when they were in the wilderness, instead of trusting God, they what? Rumbled. And so Paul is not only evoking Jesus' baptism, he's evoking the even more ancient story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And I could put lots of verses up there, but I just put one from Exodus. Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. That's the lesson that we're here to learn, to trust him. And always to be ready to give or share uh, a word of life. Right? 
Um, hopefully this sermon is a word, a life-giving word to you. Um, that's our prayer. But this is also something that we can do for one another as we're making this journey together. When people in the city would feel overwhelmed by the darkness and the noise and the distraction, they would go out into the desert and they would walk up those mountains to find those monks that were burrowed in those caves doing nothing but meditating on the mystery of the triune God. <laughs> and they would go to these monks and they would say, Abba or Amma. There were also women monks. And they would say, give us a word of life. Give us a word of life. The word that uh, Paul uses here is zoe, which is going to be uh, Yusuf and Jasmine's baby's name. Zoe is a really beautiful word. It means life, but not mere existence. Um, the Greek word for that is bios, where we get the word biology from. That's just the dates on your tombstone. Zoe is fullness of life. Zoe is your best self. Zoe is who you are discovering to be in Christ. <laughs> It's fullness of life. And we have all had a taste of it this morning. Amen? When we come together as a community, but we look forward to that time when we finally step into paradise and our journey is over. Paul uh, ends the passage by saying, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul here talks about the fact that he may lose his life. He's, he's facing martyrdom. The Philippians knew that he was in prison. When he was in Philippi sharing the gospel with them, he was thrown into prison. And so he doesn't know what his future has. But Paul has made a decision to rejoice. And it's important to know that to, the act of rejoicing is not the same thing as happiness. Paul, Jesus rejoiced in the most painful moments of his ministry when he was being persecuted. Jesus rejoices when he hears that his friend Lazarus died. To rejoice is an expression of our free will. It's a decision that we make in faith and hope that God is and will make all things well. It has nothing to do with our present circumstances. And so Paul talks about his own life as this drink offering, which is a really powerful image. In the Old Testament, when a priest would present a... Uh, a sacrifice to the Lord, the, the centerpiece was the burnt offering. And Paul's really careful here. Jesus is our offering. He's the sacrifice. Jesus is the reason why you and I are able to even be in the presence of a mysterious transcendent God. We're going to celebrate that in a moment with communion. 
So Paul doesn't make himself the central sacrifice here. But the drink offering was a uh, cup of wine that the priest would pour over the fire. And it would turn into steam and it would mix within the smoke of the burnt offering so that they were almost indistinguishable. And together it made a soothing aroma to the Lord. What a beautiful picture Paul's giving us when we think about our own life and our relationship with Jesus Christ, right? The only way to be in Christ, to follow him, is a willingness to share in his suffering, a willingness to be in that garden of Gethsemane, a willingness to surrender our will to the Father and to rejoice regardless of our circumstances. Amen? I've been looking forward to saying this. The band can come up. <laughs> but while they're making their journey, uh, I want to invite you to close your eyes. And you've, uh, you've been carrying a lot this week. And so you may find it difficult to even focus on what I'm saying right now. But I want you to the best of your ability to relax. Maybe attend to your breathing a little bit. Slow down. And I want you to imagine stepping into the Jordan River. If you've been baptized, feel free to go back and remember that moment. But I want to invite you to step into that water. Let it cover your whole body. This is a place where we can let go of our personas, our false selves. This is where Adam, our old identity, has been stripped away in Christ. Now, now I want you to slowly surface out of the water. Know that the Holy Spirit is with you. And I want you to hear the Father's word of blessing over you. The Father is saying to you, you are my beloved. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. I created you to be fully alive. I created you to share in my love and to love one another. And I know that you're burdened by brokenness and sin. I know that your desires are distorted. But I have given you my son who has died in your place. He's paid the price. You can come to me. I love you. You can come to me. I'm drawing you to myself. You can come to me and receive 
my love. I, I know everything you have done and everything you could possibly do. But that has been paid at the cross. And I love you. And I want to adopt you into my family. Brothers and sisters, if you have been baptized, if you know Jesus, you can rest in that truth. I want you to rest in that truth. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.